0: You've heard it said, uh, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And around and around the cycle goes. In the book of Judges, uh, one of the amazing things about the book of Judges is it, it uh, shows us how this cycle works in Scripture, and it goes around in the exact same cycle seven seven different times, and we see how God responds to man's sinfulness and rebellion, as we saw last week, and how He moves in our direction, and how He gets us to move in His direction, and then what we do, and around and around it goes. And so, the story of Judges is the story of a God who is consistently faithful to his promises while man is consistently unfaithful to his obligations. The thing about Judges is, if, to, the, to the novice, the book of Judges would appear to be this book that contains a story of a God who deals harshly with his people. But anybody that knows anything about the Bible would realize that it's the exact opposite, the exact opposite. And what God is doing, it just depends on, it's sort of like what we're looking at is we're looking at this picture of God relating to his people like like two good parents relate to their children. And you have to decide whether you're going to read the book of Judges from the perspective of the good parents or the disobedient child. That's that's where people get confused because obviously to read it as a disobedient child would be to read it incorrectly because um, if the child knew what was best, the child wouldn't need parents, right? So here's how the cycle goes. First of all, Prosperity and peace lead to spiritual coasting, which leads to grievous sin. Like I said Sunday morning, the greatest danger in our lives is not what we're all thinking about when I ask the question. It's spiritual coasting, because all the things that you think about that are your greatest danger all happen when you're spiritually coasting. And if you weren't spiritually coasting, those things wouldn't happen, so they wouldn't be dangerous. But coasting opens the door for everything else. So once that happens, then God raises up oppressors because he loves us, because he cares about us, because he chastises those whom he loves, because he's a good parent. And he's not going to allow us to continue on in the ways we should not go. And then thirdly, the people then finally have enough and cry out for help. And what you're going to notice is, is that as the cycles progress, tonight we'll be in the second cycle, we'll see some, and you'll, you'll notice that the cycles, uh, you know, have little nuances. People, uh, people sometimes it takes longer, as, as our hearts get harder, it takes longer for us to cry out and ask for help. Once that happens, God raises up a judge. Honestly, I think the easiest way to understand a judge, a judge is, a, is a, meant to be a spiritual metaphor for Savior, um, but it's, it's really a lot like a parent. It's like God gives an orphan child a father to uh, care for them and to discipline them and to uh, raise them and to teach them. And then the, so the judge comes to deliver the people, and after a period of peace, the people inevitably provoke God again. Because when times are good, it creates weak men or disobedient people. And then the cycle begins and God raises up oppressors again. And so that is the cycle that we're going to see repeated over and over through these chapters in Judges. Now let's read together Judges chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. And we'll see the first judge. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishatam. King of Mesopotamia and the people of Israel served Kushan Rezatan for eight years. Now, remember last week that we saw that God's anger is a faithful anger that represents the great love of God for his people. The Bible says in Romans chapter two, or do you not despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? I say this over and over and over again, although God's um, operation in our life may be painful, the purpose behind it is not pain it's always to bring us it's to get our attention it's it's for our good. It's not to hurt us. Because if you think about it, God is a sovereign, all-powerful God, meaning he can do anything he wants to do with anyone he wants to do it, in any way, shape, or form he chooses to do it. So if that's the case, which it is, then it wouldn't make any sense for God to toy around with punishing us. If he was just angry and wanted to get us, then in the blink of an eye, we would no longer exist, right? And so the reason that he keeps coming back and he keeps working with us and he keeps bringing trouble into our lives and getting our attention is because, obviously, he's trying to accomplish something for our good because it's not for his good. So when we understand the weakness of our own flesh, we'll understand our need for God to be merciful to us and our need for God to be angry with us in order to save ourselves from ourselves. It's very important to understand this principle that we need God to be merciful and angry. Because we, you, you have to know yourself well enough to know that if God's only merciful with you, it's going to go really bad. It's going to go really bad. I need His mercy, but I also need His anger. Because without His anger, I'll take advantage, I'll presume upon His mercy. But if I have anger and no mercy, I have no chance either. I need both of those to be existing in my life I need those. I need those to protect me from me. So what we find is the king of Mesopotamia takes over and now rules over God's people. Now, that what's interesting about this is that, that Mesopotamia would have been an extraordinarily powerful army that didn't come. This wasn't a Canaanite group of people. This isn't a, a people that existed in what's, what the promised land is. They traveled from up north and came all the way down. So God brought an external world power into the picture. And just obviously the Israelites at this point in their existence were zero match. The only way that they uh, were militarily successful is because God was with them. So when God delivered them, it was just a cakewalk for their oppressors. So Mesopotamia was the most powerful of all people who lived in the promised land. But actually they lived outside the border of the promised land to the north. So, this king Kushan Rishatame it the name means double wickedness. Double wickedness not the guy you want taking over your land and taking over your people. Uh, It was a a very bad situation. So when double wickedness shows up on the scene, it is also double wicked in that we see God using wickedness to punish wickedness. Again, another theme that we see in the book of judges is that god's not relegated to who or what he's going to use to accomplish his purposes a lot of times we have a hard time comprehending the fact that god would use pagan situations or circumstances or people or wickedness or whatever he wants to do but we see that evil is one of his tools that he'll use with wickedness against our own wickedness So if you think about, uh, well, how are we supposed to feel about this? How can God use evil? Maybe you've asked this question. A lot of people have asked me this question over the years. It seems like a thoughtful question when somebody asks it. But if you really think about the question... You realize it's not thoughtful at all. How can he not? What exactly would God use? Now, the most evil thing that's ever happened in the history of the world was the death of Jesus, and obviously that is the greatest thing that God's ever used in the history of the world. So, that's the first indicator of, well, certainly God uses evil because He did that with Jesus. But on a more basic, logical level, there are only two things in all of existence. One is, there's a holy creator. And the other is, There's a broken creation. Now, everything in the entire world fits into one of those two categories. So when you stop and think about it, well, God only has wickedness to work with. Because the only thing that's not wicked is him. So what else would he use? See, even if God used some great uh, spiritual leader, it would still be wickedness because we're all wicked. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, right? So there's not a lot of choices. So that's how God works. So let's see how this whole thing plays out as the people are oppressed by Mesopotamia. Look at verses 9 through 11. We'll see the first judge. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, remember the cycle, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, this is Caleb who went into the, spied out the promised land and was faithful with Joshua. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim king of mesopotamia into his hand and his hand prevailed over him so the land had rest 40 years then othniel the son of kenaz died and so this judge othniel we don't hardly have any information about him except for this nobody's you know we don't have any kids in the preschool department or over in awana right now named othniel Nobody's going, you know, my favorite judge in the book of Judges is Othniel. Everybody knows Samson, right? Everybody knows Gideon. Nobody knows Othniel, but yet he's the one that everybody should be basing whether or not somebody's a good judge or a bad judge against because he's really the the model. We don't know a lot about him, but what we do know is good. Good. So what God does here is God spanks a nation with a nation and like every good spanking, it hurts and Israel cries. God is very fatherly in the way He deals with His people in the book of Judges. And so they cry out, but they do not cry out because they come to their senses and realize they are wrong. They cry out because they're in pain, just like a child. And that's not ultimately the goal, but pain does serve a purpose, doesn't it? As uh, my mother-in-law is quick to teach any young mother Uh, if it doesn't hurt, you have to go back in and do it again. And so she was well, my wife was well trained on how to deliver the wooden spoon to the rear endo. So they cry out because they're in pain. But it took eight years for them to get to that point. For eight years, they were mixed up in worshiping idols and mixed up in following other gods and mixed up in uh, all sorts of nonsense that they shouldn't have been mixed up in. It took a long time. And so after eight years, God raises up Othniel, a family man from the city of Debir, to be the deliverer of Israel. Now... This is the only place in the Bible that he shows up, is in the book of Judges. We're introduced to him in Judges chapter 1, where the Bible just simply makes reference to the fact that uh, he he goes and defeats the city of Debir and then wins his wife in marriage. So we know that he's committed to his family. We know that he's a warrior. We know a lot of noble things about him. Uh, and we know that his name means God's strength. He comes from warrior stock. Now, whether he's the blood relative, there's some dispute over whether he's actually the blood little brother of Caleb or whether he's a blood brother of Caleb because if you look at the way that uh, their fathers are described, they're from the same place, but it may not be the same person. It really doesn't matter which way or the other. But the point is, he's a, he's a guy who is very committed to what is right. He's uh, somebody who leads well and who handles responsibility well. And so he lives up to his name, God's strength. Then the Spirit of God moves on him, and he responds to God with action. Steps into a fight with impossible odds, and he does so without fear. So this is one of those illustrations where when we were in the, the conversation about the Holy Spirit in our last uh, sermon series, where I was talking about how you see in the Old Testament the Spirit of the Lord would come on somebody and then depart somebody. Well, we see that all through the uh, book of Judges. And so here we see the Spirit of the Lord comes on him. And he is basically uh, just called by God to do what is militarily impossible. There's zero chance that they would be able to defeat Mesopotamian army. There's, There's zero chance. But he does that. It's important to understand. Does he have... Does he know how he's going to be able to defeat him. Does he know all the specifics? Does he, I mean, God doesn't give him all the information of all the things you'd like to know. All he knows is that God's called him to do something, and he steps up to the plate to do it, and the rest is history, which, again, that's what you saw modeled in Moses. That's what you saw modeled in Joshua. And Othniel is a great example of the same thing. And so... The Spirit doesn't come on him because he's special, but because God is sovereign. God could have chosen anybody he wants to. He doesn't always choose somebody who's upright and uh, seems like the, the best candidate. But in this particular case, this is the person he chose, and this is what he chose him to do. And when God chooses somebody to do something, then all they have to do is walk in obedience to that calling. And guess what? Things are going to happen. And oftentimes, they're going to happen in a way that we would never expect it. They're going to happen in a way that we could never predict it. They're going to happen. It's going to happen in ways that we could have never done it. So therefore, we know it's God. I mean, certainly, my life is filled with examples of that. And I'm sure you can think of examples in your own life where God's done the same thing. And there's no way that you could explain uh, how things worked the way they did and how you ended up in the place that you are apart from the sovereign hand of God being upon you in that moment. But again, in those moments, God's not forcing us to do anything. He's putting an opportunity before us. We walk in obedience. And apart from us walking in obedience... And God's plan is not dependent on us walking into obedience. What is dependent on us walking in obedience is our opportunity to participate in God's plan. So if God calls me to do something and I fail to do it because I'm, for whatever reason, then whatever God's plan and agenda is to do, He's going to do. He's just going to use somebody else. So you also have to remember that it's incumbent upon you to to walk, to take a step of faith, but at the same time, don't ever believe that what God's trying to accomplish is dependent upon you. You've got to understand that because those are two very different things. What's dependent upon me and you is the opportunity that we have to be a part of what God's doing. But what God is doing is never dependent on us. Because he'll just do it a different way. And furthermore, God can do it without any people if he so chooses. So he's going to do what he's going to do. It's a good thing to remember. So the Bible is not a story about faithful men and women living faithfully so they can save themselves. That's not at all what we're talking about here. what we have is a story about billions of faithless people and one faithful man Jesus Christ just one one and only one and so just in the few minutes that we've been having this conversation about Othniel because we have a whole lot more information about the next judge that we're about to talk about look at the Look at the connections that we have. Look at all of the nuances in this this little bitty uh, introduction to this little-known person. Like Othniel, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. See, because we know all about Othniel's heritage and his uh, tribal background because We're given all that lineage. We also know, like Othniel, Jesus arrives after a relative who had gone before him. Who was the relative that went before Jesus? John. What else? Like Othniel, Jesus is a family man from an obscure town. See, Othniel didn't come from some You know, he came from a little nowhere town like Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Like Othniel, Jesus' ministry began with the Holy Spirit descending upon him. Right? Like a dove as he was baptized by John. And then also, like Othniel, Jesus gives us rest. The only difference is his rest never ends. And so you can see how the Bible gives us the book of Judges, and the judge is a picture of a deliverer. It's a, it's a, a, a small little, you know, illustration of how God delivers, and they always connect in ways to Jesus so that we're, we're able to make that connection. All right, now let's jump into... Um, the next story, which I would say if you have children over the age of, uh, certainly if you have students that have you know, grown up in church and, and for any amount of time, they know this story because I can't be the only one in the room that this has got to be like top five stories to teach my kids. I mean, this is an amazing story to teach children. And if I'm stuck in, you know, if I'm unprepared and have to sub in a children's class and I go over there and I got some fourth grade boys and I'm whipping it open to Judges chapter three because they're going to be glued to everything I'm about to say. But it would be fun if some of you in here have never heard this story because this is going to be very eye-opening for you. If you're new to the Bible, you're going to be That's in there? Yes, in there. All right, beginning in verse 12, Judges 3. And the children of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthens Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. So let's talk for a minute about this oppressor that God uses to get his people's attention. So now what we have is three enemies joining together, banding together to uh, rule over the Israelites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. Now, Moab and Ammon, those are the two sons, the incestuous offspring of Lot and his daughters from Genesis 19. So they're, they're the outsiders. Moab's always been a problem. You just went through uh, Ruth in reading in your D group study, so you know Moab is... The Moabites were outsiders apart from the people of God. And so uh, Israel had already defeated them. Because if you remember back in Numbers 31, Balak and Balaam and all of that, that's the Moabites. So these are people that the Israelites have already previously humiliated. Then you've got the Amalekites. And they're the first Canaanite people that ever attacked Israel. They were the ones that attacked the Israelites uh, unprovoked when they crossed the Red Sea in Exodus 17. So for 18 years, this is why that's significant. Because these 18 years that they were under the oppression of Eglon, this was 18 years of humiliation because they were under the oppression of foes that they had previously defeated, which makes it even worse. And so it was, it's very, of all the people that the Israelites uh, would not want ruling over them, it would be Eglon. And so this was bad for them. It was humiliating. So God was trying to get their attention. Now this king, Eglon, who is he? Well, His name means little calf. So that's a good indicator of where the story's going. Little calf. That's what Eglon means. And the Bible says he ruled in the city of Palms, which is Jericho, which would have been the first city that the children of Israel would have defeated when they crossed over the Jordan. Right? So they're heavily oppressed. For eighteen years, I want you to kind of get that in your head. They went eight years the last time. see when you when you discipline your kids for whatever it whatever uh offense it may be well when the when that offense is the same offense is committed again, hopefully you don't Use the same discipline because clearly it was ineffective the first time. And so anybody with any sense knows, we're ramping this puppy up. You didn't get it the last time, so we're going to turn the dial this time. See? So maybe it's, we went from, okay, last time you got the wooden spoon, this time... We're going to wait till your dad comes home, and he don't use the wooden spoon. Right? Don't look at me like I'm some kind of freak. (laughs) Humor me, because I'll be very upset, and this message will take a very different turn if I get the feeling that you are sitting there in opposition, not disciplining your children. So, all right. All right. So, 18 years of this, right? Okay. So, God raises up Ehud as a deliverer. Ehud. Ehud is like Eglon is little calf. Ehud. Is like you know the movie Rudy. You know the guy that was the walk-on at Notre Dame. Not a big Notre Dame fan, but big fan of that. That's a good movie. You know Rudy, little Rudy, Rudy. And if you you know you should watch that movie. It's a good movie. Well, this deliverer, Ehud, is Rudy. He's 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 Rocky Balboa. In Rocky 1, he's the guy who has zero chance, but he is called by God to do something, and he steps out in faith. Look at verse 15, but when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, the left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud made himself a dagger, a double-edged, it was double-edged and a cubit in length, and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Too much information. So they brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And you're supposed to laugh there. It's meant to be humorous. I mean, all the Israelites, when they read this, would crack up at that course they would already know that he was called little calf for a reason and when he had finished presenting the tribute he sent away the people who had carried the tribute now let's understand what the symbolism of what's happening here what's the tribute first of all the reason that eglon is a very fat man is because he's eating all the first fruits of everything that israelite was supposed to be giving to the lord The tribute that they're bringing is what they should have been bringing to the temple for God. But they couldn't because they were under oppression. And so there's symbolism going on here of of what's happening. And so God raises up this deliverer and he makes a double-edged sword. Again, same word that's used to describe the Word of God in the New Testament. This double-edged sword and it's not a normal sword it's more of a dagger it's 13 inches in length that's the cubit so from your elbow to your wrist it's a 13 inch which really didn't exist so he makes this thing custom made to carry out this operation that he's been called to do now he's left-handed the bible's not just telling us that he's Left-handed. What the Bible's telling us is that his right hand is incapacitated, or withered, or deformed, or unusable, or whatever the case may be. So he's he only has one good hand, and it's the opposite hand from what everybody else uses. Because the all of the think about uh, Psalm 16:11. Think about all the New Testament passages. Uh, you know, look, the Bible is not trying to offend you if you're left-handed. You just have to understand the symbolism of the right hand in the Bible. Where does, Where is Jesus seated? At the right hand. There are pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. Psalm 1611. Over and over and over, it's the right hand. In other words, the right hand, it doesn't mean the right hand as much as it just means the place of honor, so to speak, or whatever the case may be. And so... A person who was trained to fight would be trained to fight with the right hand. Well, the point is is that he's got a withered right hand and so he only has a left hand that's usable and so therefore he's, I mean, in this culture, a person with a physical deformity, it would have been a hundred times worse than in a culture like ours, which is still difficult but it would have been a hundred times worse. And so we're told that he's a He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now remember, Benjamin, Jacob's son Benjamin, is the reason why there's a tribe Benjamin, right? Okay. And how did Benjamin get his name? Who's Benjamin's mom? Rachel. And when Rachel was giving birth to Benjamin, if you remember, she was... Uh, about to die and ended up dying, giving birth to Benjamin. And so, in the course of all that, she named him uh, Man of Sorrows. That was originally what he was uh, uh, named. And so, in Genesis 35. And so, uh, she calls him Benoi, which is uh, son of my sorrows or man of sorrows. And then Jacob. The father says, no, we're not going to call him that. We're going to name him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. All of these little things are going on to point us to something. So we've got the, we've got the left-handed, withered right-handed Benjaminite. See all the word play going on here? So, there's a man who... So, the first judge is a holy man, Othniel. And the second judge is a handicapped man, which I think is very intentional on God's part. And as we go through these judges, you're going to see this whole litany of differences between all these judges. And that's God being very intentional to show us the variation and degree to which the people that he chooses to use and the ways in which he chooses to use them because he knows that we have a propensity to do two things. One, to judge other people and say, well, God wouldn't use them. God would use this person if God was going to do something, which is unwise and unbiblical. And secondly, we have a tendency to say, God would never use me, but he would use someone else which is unwise and unbiblical. And so just in the first two, you see we have two, we, the first, Othniel was a warrior. I mean, this guy was a, was a, a, just trampled over every enemy that he approached, and now we have this guy with a deformed arm who nobody's afraid of. nobody, Everybody sees as harmless and useless and looks down upon him and everything else. And so you, God's just showing us that you better get out of your box when you're trying to figure out who God's going to use to do the things God wants to do. I don't know any other way to say it. Verse 19. So he tells his... All the people that are with him that are paying tribute to the king, he tells them all to go back in silence, to leave. And verse 19 says, But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Now, for a long time, I thought that what was being referred to in verse 19 it always bothered me verse 19 always bothered me because on one hand it reads as if there are these carved images right because obviously they're an oppressed people they've been oppressed for 18 years so the land is going to be filled with all these uh you know false gods and carved images and all kinds of things right but what bothered me is that the Bible always took an extra step to make sure that, that we we knew that this was at Gilgal. Where is Gilgal? Gilgal is that little piece of land that the children of Israel, when they crossed over the Jordan and Jericho is before them, Gilgal is the first place that they stopped. And that's where they put the stones that they carried from the river that marked the faithfulness of God to carry him across the river. That's where they uh, had the mass circumcision situation. Uh, I'm going to go into enough sticky stuff tonight, so I'm going to leave that one alone. Went into all that, although I do have a great circumcision story, but I'll just save it for another day. Uh, I'll just let you think about what that might be. So, Gilgal. So what stone image are they looking at? I think they're looking at the memorial to the faithfulness of God to carry him into the promised land. That's what they're looking at. So Gilgal was the city where Joshua had set up their first memorial, the 12 stones placed there in order to teach future generations about God's provision. So there's Ehud. God's called him to do something. He's made this little he's fashioned this little dagger. He's custom made this little thing that you know, he's he's put it on his thigh underneath his cloak. Nobody else knows he has it. He goes with the contingency of people to 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 basically, you know, pay homage to this foreign king. And he's got this idea in his head of what god's called him to do but i don't think he has a real well thought out plan of how this is going to go down he's just kind of going and so as he's going he walks by the city and sees a memorial to god who can do anything with anyone and i think that the reason the bible tells us this is because i think this gives him great courage I think this encourages him and and strengthens him to press on with what he feels called to do. So he says, keep silent and tells everybody who was attending with him to leave. All right. Chapter 3, verse 20. So Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into the king's belly. And the hilt, or the shaft where your hand goes, also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. This is a great story. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they said, well, surely he is relieving himself in the closet Of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. It's getting better. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber. They took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Now. When he when Ehud goes in where the king is, why is Ehud allowed to go in alone with the king? Because nobody, nobody fears this handicapped little man. He's the most harmless, pitiful-looking person that could be. And so... No, there's zero chance that the king would ever be alone with anybody else. But this guy, and so he says, I have a secret message. And so the king says, okay, goes in there alone. Now, what I'm imagining happened is, is that every time I've, believe me, I've read this hundreds of times. And I've told this story to kids over and over and over and over. And I always imagine that Ehud, Ehud, he kneels down before the king like he's about to prophesy something and then he reaches down gets that dagger and as he comes up he just thrusts it in and the point of why does the bible tell us in graphic detail of the intensity with which he thrusts this dagger into the king this guy has always been last he wasn't picked last he wasn't even invited to play He was always last. He was always useless. He was always pitiful. He was always everything you didn't want to be. But in this moment, he felt God had called him to do something. And I think that the reason it's so important to see how the Bible is so specific about the veracity with which he did this, because this is his shot. And he is committed to this to such a degree that there was no way that he was going to allow that dagger to not kill this king. And that's why he shoved it in the way he did. And that's why the Bible tells us the things that it tells us. And so here you are in the hottest, most arid region of the promised land by far. You've got the king who has just been stabbed in this private chamber. Now, what do you think happens? This, You know, how graphic do I have to be here? As this is going on, the guards are outside. Well, when they see him leaving... And they think, well, you know, let's go talk to the king. Well, they get up to the door, and when they go to knock, they go, whew-wee. He's definitely in there relieving himself, right? That's why they perceive that to be the case. I mean, (laughs) uh, so many things fly through my mind, like... uh, how do we get the saying, you know, he's on the throne? Or someone's dead in there. It all came from the Bible. And so that's what creates this whole dynamic is, is that you're not going to go in there and... and uh, like, if you, if you read this passage in the Hebrew... it's the same exact wording as when David is hiding in the the cave and Saul is in there and the Bible says he's going to relieve himself in the Hebrew it means cover your feet not relieve yourself that's how we say it but in the Hebrew it literally is transliterated cover your feet why does it say cover your feet I don't know have you ever been in the public restroom And you have an emergency, and you're trying to find an empty stall, and you're trying to figure out which one you can go in. And how do you do that? You go look under there and go, Whoop, covered feet, ain't going in that one. Right? I'm just saying, the Bible's super handy. You're getting spiritual wisdom and bathroom etiquette all in one thing, wrapped up into one. So, Ehud, in verse 26, escapes while they delayed because they're waiting for him. Because you know what you don't do to a king? Disturb him when his feet are covered. Or dad, or a husband, right? Okay. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Shearer. Now, verse 27 when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. So he blows the shofar. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. Now, can you, you do you get the gravity of the turn of events that have just happened? The runt of the nation. The person who's so pathetic that no one even cares if he goes in with the king alone. See, first of all, even if you got an audience with the king, you'd be patted down and they'd make sure that you had no weapon. This guy, they don't even worry about whether he has a weapon because he doesn't even have the capacity to use a weapon, so they thought. And in just one quick spin of events, That person ends up becoming the leader of God's people. And then in verse 28, he says to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at the time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. There's so much here. For example, the fords of the Jordan. What does that mean, the fords of the Jordan? That's the, the exact place where the Israelites crossed. It's called Bethany. That's where John the Baptist began his ministry where? Bethany. In other words, these are all significant details that connect to New Testament moments. All these are pieces of God just showing you how All of this works together, and how God uses these. This is a place of beginning. It's the place of beginning where they crossed over to begin their journey into the promised land. It was the place of the beginning where John the Baptist began the announcement of the coming Messiah. Place of the beginning. Now, the question here is it sounds kind of warmongering, doesn't it? I mean, are we supposed to praise or condemn? ehud's actions it's a good question maybe you know maybe you're the kind of person that reads this and thinks i don't know i mean i just don't like any of this this sounds like cruel cruelty this sounds uh like a lot of violence it sounds like a lot of things that make me uncomfortable well, I would say that it is a very dangerous thing to stand in judgment of God because He doesn't fit our perceived ideas. I mean, our preconceived ideas. In other words, this is how God chose to do it. Therefore, this was how it should have been done. Right? Was this the way I would have done it? Well, of course not, because I'm not nearly this creative. But we have to be careful, because when we start to uh, interject our preconceived ideas, because the do-so would place us at the center of the universe as judge overall. See, the question is not, how do we feel about what God did? That really is not the question. The question is, God did it. Now, what does that mean for me and you? That's that's really the question. See, we don't want to walk down this slope because here's what happens. Soon we're going to make foolish statements like, God would never blank. Go ahead, fill it in. Have at it. Or God would never ask me to. We could answer those questions. But, but we have to be knowledgeable about the Scripture before we start infusing our ideas or imposing our ideas on God you have to be careful about that so here's some lessons let's talk about these lessons from ehud to us because there's a lot of them the first one is is that i i see ehud as a man who is angry at evil see the if you if you go back to the beginning and trace this from the beginning you'd say now why in the world because from god's perspective this is the hardest person to use to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish because this person not only has the biggest hurdle to overcome in his own identity, right? And ability. But he's, he's angry at evil. And I think that's, very, that's a very key point because I think that, you know, if you came to me and you said to me, you know, Pastor Tony, I I really want God to use me to do great things, or I, I believe that God has called me to do this or to do that or whatever the case may be. I would inquire or observe the question that would be in my mind, depending on the scenario, whether or not I would, say this directly or observe this indirectly, but I would be looking at your life and asking the question, do you exhibit anger toward evil? I think it's the first step to being used by God. See, if you're not angry about evil, if injustice doesn't bother you, well then I don't see God using you to do anything. See, a lot of people are angry about a lot of things, but they're the wrong things, aren't they? Are you angry about evil and injustice? See, most people that are angry think they're angry about evil, but what they're really angry about is they're just angry about opposition. They're just angry because things aren't the way they want them to be. But what we see here is Ehud is angry because things aren't the way God wants them to be. See, the Bible says, be angry and don't sin, right? So righteous anger is a good and healthy thing. The Bible says... Remember, the Bible says Moses left hot at Pharaoh because he uh, disobeyed uh, the, the command of the Lord. He was hot. Moses was a person who had to deal with anger. Ehud was angry at evil. But then that made Ehud available. So he was available. He was available to be used by God. Now, I don't, you know, I haven't really thought this all the way through, but I think there's a correlation between one and two. I'm not, I don't see a way how you could, if you're not angry at evil, then I, then I don't see how you're available. I think anger at evil is what makes you available. I tried to think of any instance in the Bible where God called someone to do something, and they weren't angry or frustrated about evil, broken, burdened, frustrated, angry. There was always great, intense emotion connected to their feelings about the situation that had made that that had been made, uh, you know, they've been made aware of. So he was angry, he was available, but, but then he was weak again. Another great quality. It's in our weakness that God's strength is made perfect, right? And this, this is clearly the weakest person you could imagine God using. We also see that Ehud's motivation in the present was God's faithfulness in the past. See, what motivated him was the fact that God had delivered his people and, and brought them into the promised land. He saw the, the, the memorial to God's faithfulness. The Bible tells us that. He he didn't know all the details. He didn't know what God was going to do or how God was going to use them or how all this was going to work out. I don't think that he had a plan for getting out of the... I think that he thought when he plunged that dagger into little calf's belly, I think that he thought he was going to die right there and he was fine with that. There's no way he could have known that the stank was going to pour out and that the guards were going to think he was, his feet were covered and all those things were going to happen. I think that's just God's providence in the whole plan. He didn't know. He he was just going with what he knew at the moment, which is basically, if you've ever been called by God to do something great, then you already know what I'm talking about. When God calls you to do something, you know what you're doing? You're you're taking one baby step at a time. It's just a lamp unto your feet. There's no Q-beam showing you where you're going down the road. You're just being faithful in the moment, and that moment leads to another moment, which leads to another moment. That's why it's not walking by sight, but walking by faith. He didn't know how he was going to succeed. See, you've got to be—I think one of the greatest problems in our current culture is is that so many people miss out on the great things that God makes available to you because you— don't have enough information so you just lock up and freeze we're so afraid of risk we're so afraid to to make ourselves vulnerable and what happens is we miss out on what god has and god uses other people That's what happens. Most of you in this room right now are far more gifted than Ehud. You have you have infinitely more gifting, wealth, opportunity, resources, but you've never ventured out beyond your own strength. You know why? Because we prize having our bases covered. That's what we prize. And at the end of the day, I think what God's saying is He's saying, Hey, who among you is willing to walk the plank? I mean, you're sitting in here tonight. angry about anything. I mean, you're angry about a lot of things, but nothing good. There's no evil that you're bent about. You're just bent about your selfishness and your pride. It's true. It's true. And there are things going on that shouldn't be going on, and you just think, it's not my problem. I can't do anything about it. Well, I don't know, this crippled little nobody just turned the whole nation around. So you're telling me you can't do anything? Ehud's success wasn't in his plan. It was in his faith. It was all about who he had his faith in. It wasn't some great thought-out scheme It was just, this is wrong, and what God's called me to do seems crazy, but I'm going to do it. And here's the thing. Ehud was unintimidated by the enemy. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us, I cannot wait to get to heaven and ask him. But my question is not, man, what was that like to plunge that dagger in his belly? Or, man, can you believe, you know, that... There's a lot of, but that, my question for Ehud is when they're leaving after paying their ransom to the king and him and the delegation are leaving and he's thinking, am I going to do this right now? Am I really going to do this? Am I actually going to do this? And he stops and says, you guys go on. And he turns around and says, tell the king I have a secret to tell him. That moment right there nobody knew he had that dagger nobody knew what he was planning it would have been easy for him to just keep on walking back to his pathetic little life but he stopped and he turned around and he faced down the most powerful man in the world and he wasn't what he wasn't intimidated by the enemy and that shouldn't surprise us why are we intimidated by the enemy Because we don't believe the promises of God. Because if we believe what the Bible says, then what enemy are we afraid of? I mean, what what are you afraid of? What power is so vast and so great that we're afraid? We We should be the most unintimidated people on earth. Right? Yes. Ehud had one objective, and it's very clear in this story that it was the glory of God. You see, Ehud, it's, it's very important for you to understand something. He has no personal skin in this game other than the fact that the God that he loves and worship is being disgraced. This is not some personal vendetta that's, that he's trying to you know, deal with or write. Or, this isn't his one shot at fame where he's thinking, oh man, if I do this, I'm going to be the big shot. And you know how you know that? Because you have to read it very carefully. But when you read it very carefully, you see like, for example, in verse 28, he says to them, follow after me, for I have given you. He didn't say that. He said the Lord did that. You notice how when he goes back, he doesn't take credit for anything? The Bible just says he gives God the credit and the people follow him. You see that? It shows you what the motivation of his heart was. It wasn't about him. It was about the glory of God. So true or false? And we'll wrap it up. There is evil out there where it should not be. Is there evil out there that should not be? That you're aware of? That you see? Or maybe that you just go by and don't see and try not to see and don't want to see? I'm just simply asking the question is it true or false? That every single person in this room is surrounded by evil that should not be. That's 100% true. That is 100% true. Second question. You and I have been sovereignly placed where we are. Is that... Is there any way that that's not true? Is there any possibility... That that's not true. And the answer is no. Not according to the Bible. So if there's evil around every one of us that should not be. And every one of us has been sovereignly placed where we are. I think we can come to a conclusion. Don't you? I think there's an unavoidable collision about to happen. No matter how uncomfortable it makes you feel. There's no way around it. Did you ever notice that when God gave us the Great Commission in Matthew 28, did you ever pay attention to the fact that what God called us to do is bracketed by, in the beginning by the fact that God has all authority, and then at the end, that he's with us always? So maybe you're just sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Tony, I don't really know what you're getting at. I don't know what God could be calling me to do. Well, I'm not professing to say that I know that either. Nor should I or would I. Because that is, if God wants you to do something, why would he tell me? He would tell you, right? My question for you is, are you trying to tell me that God hasn't called you to do anything? Is that what you're saying? You gonna make that case? You're just gonna play it safe? Coast along? Bide your time. You know what spiritual coasting is? Besides the fact that it's your greatest danger. How do you know when you're spiritually coasting? There's a very simple way to figure it out. What's, what are you doing that's causing you great sacrifice? Right now. Where is the area of your life where you are sacrificing for God? Right now. And if you have to think more than about four seconds, you're coasting. Oh so, so the New Testament doesn't apply to you, that the entire Sermon on the Mount, just off the table, where where is the? A great sacrifice. What's the big inconvenience? How many people sit in church and listen to sermon after sermon after sermon? All your needs are met. You just get up every day, go through the motions. Does that sound like a war to you? I don't think it sounds like a war. It's a war. I want you to consider. You think God really slaughtered His Son, shed His blood to save you for nothing? Is that what you think? For nothing. So you could sit here and be entertained by me and my stories? Is that what you think? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think if you genuinely go to your Heavenly Father and ask Him, He'll show you. Because he has way more invested in this thing than anybody else, right? You're here for something. You should find out what that is. And I can tell you, it's not easy. It's hard. It's going to be painful and sacrificial. It's going to be the most rewarding and joy-filled thing you've ever done in your life ever. Don't ever forget God plus one is the majority in every context. It's just you and God. You know, Ehud didn't have a he didn't have a support group around him. But he had a God within him. And all of us have more than Ehad had. You're here for something. Beware of spiritual coasting.